I really do feel a very special challenge today uh, personally, and I want to try to uh, communicate that to you. And I think that by the time the sun sets on today's ministry, uh, every one of you can be radically and forever changed, notwithstanding how long you may have been saved. You may have been in this church for decades or just a a few days or weeks. Uh, But I really believe that if we apply ourselves to God today, uh, we're going to be forever changed. There are terms to discipleship. There are terms. That means there are conditions and stipulations. When something has a condition or a stipulation, it means that it's limited Uh, Whatever is proposed is limited, and it can't just be granted or done unless certain and particular, not everyone is willing to do so. Being a disciple of the Lord Jesus, that word simply means a learner and a follower. It is someone who puts themselves in a position to be that. If you're going to school, you want to go to medical school, you've got to position yourself and then make decisions that will keep you there studying and all the dynamics that are involved in the very rigorous discipline that it's going to take to get you through med school so you can become a doctor. You have to make those decisions. And the same principle is true when it comes to discipleship. Jesus solicited followers who would become disciples. Listen to how Jesus put it. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And he said, whoever does not hate his own life also cannot be my disciple. You see, it's not automatic. And you're not a disciple because you may say you're a disciple. There are terms, there are conditions, and there are stipulations. And the question is, are you willing? Will you make the right choices? that will put you in the position to be a disciple. Being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and maintaining that position will involve some of the most challenging, some of the most difficult decisions that you will ever make in your life And I believe this altar here today is going to represent those type of decisions. This is a disciple-making altar call that we are navigating our way toward this morning. So let's read our text in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. We're only going to read five verses this morning. Follow along with me as I read it aloud. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. When Jesus had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself 
Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but then loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this opportunity here today. I pray right now, Lord, for anointing, special anointing that will arrest and captivate the hearts of all the saints that are gathered here today. Let us leave this service this morning after having had an encounter with you that will change our lives forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. I want to talk about the call to discipleship. I like how this text begins. And it's kind of one of those lines that we don't think there's a lot of meaning necessarily in it. It just kind of uh, sets the stage for what Jesus ended up saying. Verse 34 says, when he called the people to himself with his disciples also. Let's examine this. When he called the people with his disciples, these are two distinct groups of people. Those who are his disciples and those who are not yet his disciples, but he's ministering to them and he's challenging them. He called the people to himself along with his disciples. The disciples had made choices and made decisions and the people have yet to make those decisions and he is challenging them. And this wasn't the only occasion where this very interesting dimension is taking place in Luke chapter 7, we have the story of the raising of the dead of the widow at Nain. And that begins with a similar verse in Luke 7, verse 11. Now, it happened the day after that Jesus went to a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. So everybody was not a disciple. There were those identified as disciples. And then there are those identified as the crowd who are not yet disciples. But what is interesting to me is that Jesus said the same thing, the same very challenging and very succinct and very clear words. He reinforced them to his disciples But he also spoke them uh, uh, to the other crowd at large uh, who had not yet made the decision uh, to be a disciple. Uh, He said the same things. Uh, And I believe uh, that these two groups of people, uh, these two crowds, uh, are sitting here uh, this morning. Being a disciple requires uh, decisions uh, that will take you there. Jesus doesn't make you a disciple. Uh, all he can do is challenge you. Uh, you have to make the decisions uh, that will put you in that position. Uh, and the fact of the matter is uh, that not everyone here uh, has made those decisions. Uh, you can be here a very long time and not have made the decisions. Uh, you can be here a very short amount of time, uh, a matter of 
a few months. And already you're making decisions that are putting you in the position of being a disciple. So what distinguishes these two groups of people? It's what I've said already. The decisions that have been made up until this point. Discipleship is about making choices. It has very little to do with talent, with opportunity, or with position. Discipleship is a never-ending challenge. You make one decision that puts you in the position to be a disciple, and it's not going to be very long before the next challenge comes, and the next word comes from the Lord. And then you have to make another decision that will maintain your status as a disciple and propel you further and deeper into the will of God. These disciples mentioned in our text have already started down that road. Thus far, they have positioned themselves. They have forsaken their former life. They have accepted Jesus' challenge, and they are following him. They're hungry for what he has to say, and they're making these decisions. In Mark chapter 2, the Bible says that as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi at the tax office and said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed Jesus. There are 13 different occasions in the New Testament where we have this two-word phrase, Jesus saying, follow me. And these were made to disciples. They were made to people like the rich young ruler. Some accepted that challenge. Some made the decision to follow him, and some did not. Some became disciples, and some did not. Not because Jesus made that choice. But they made their own choices. And this term, follow me, is the very first term that defines you as a disciple. This is what gets it all started. The word follow me, that that appeal that Jesus made, it means to come alongside and remain. Follow me. In order to follow him, Peter uh, and his brother, uh, the Bible says they forsook their nets uh, and followed him. Levi uh, left where he was uh, and began to follow Jesus, as did uh, the other disciples. But many besides the twelve were also identified as disciples in those days uh, at that stage uh, of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Peter and Andrew. Uh, They were fishermen, uh, and then he said to them, follow me. And you know what's so fascinating to me? Three years passed from that moment until John chapter 21. At the very end of Jesus' ministry, he's still making the same appeal to the same disciples. To follow Jesus early on didn't cost a lot. It was exciting and thrilling. The Messiah... His words, the miracles, it was all very thrilling and very exciting. And so when he said, follow me, in that atmosphere, it was somewhat easy for those disciples. But now three years pass. Jesus dies on the cross. He raises from the dead. And in John 21, he meets with his disciples. And he spoke to Peter, signifying what death with which he would die in order to glorify God. And when Jesus spoke those words to him, he said again, follow me. You're going to follow me now? 
You see, it's not just one time that he says, follow me. As you grow in the will of God, the challenges and the appeals become more costly and requires more of you. That's why many people get off the discipleship bandwagon. They've had enough of challenge. They've had enough of sacrifice. And Jesus says to Peter, look, Peter, you're going to have to sacrifice your life for the cause of Christ. Follow me. And he said it twice to him in John chapter 21. It's different now than it was at the beginning. Not everyone is a disciple, at least not yet. So how can we characterize this crowd? The Bible says he called a crowd to himself, the people, and his disciples. So how do we characterize the crowd and many others that Jesus spoke to, and perhaps some that are seated here this morning. Crowd comes. The crowd recognizes there's something going on here. The crowd is curious. The crowd wants something from Jesus. The crowd wants to hear the words that he is speaking. Jesus appealed to them. But the question is, on what level did he appeal to them? They were getting healed. They were being delivered. Their needs were met. Nothing was being asked of them. No price had to be paid to be part of the crowd. They could gather at their own convenience. They could gather together if Jesus was in the vicinity. And they could go to wherever he was nearby. They had been delivered. Their needs were met. They saw the miracles. They were on the receiving end of his ministry. And they had experienced a supernatural dimension flowing from him. So who wouldn't want to hang around that? They were close enough for Jesus to gather them to himself and begin to speak to them and begin to challenge them. You see, discipleship has a beginning. It begins with conversion And it begins with you making your very first decision early on in your Christian life that you are going to go on and follow Jesus Christ. We have a lot of people who pray at our altars that we never see again. They pray, they receive Christ, they're genuinely touched and moved on by God, but they don't make a decision. Maybe they don't understand. Maybe they haven't grasped real revelation. We try to help them and follow up and encourage them, but they simply don't make the decision to return and to come back and to follow Jesus. And then there are others who early on, they've been converted. They get saved at the altar. And then they say, you know what? I'm coming back to church tonight. Oh, you have service on Wednesday? I'm coming back then. And then we contact them in the week. And they're reading their Bibles. Their hearts have been opened by God. And they're beginning the process of following Jesus Christ. This is why the early moments of your Christian life are so critical. It's in those early moments that we decide we're going to get water baptized. And we're going to go on and live for God. We're going to get filled with the power of the Holy Ghost, and we're going to go on and live for God. It's in those early moments of our conversion that we start telling others about Jesus and bringing them to church, and we're following, and we're hungry, and we're thirsty, and we're desiring more of what God has for our lives. Once converted, if you're going to go on and be a disciple, 
You have to make a decision. I'm following Jesus. I'm going to come alongside, and I'm going to remain there. You can't go back to the same old thing, the same old life. Whosoever is in Christ is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. You have to make decisions that will cooperate with that miracle of conversion that has taken place in your life. In our text, when he had called the people to himself. He's challenging them. He's soliciting from them a deeper commitment to follow, to advance their relationship with him and become his disciples versus just being part of the crowd, part of the spectators, part of those who are associated but not affiliated, who are present but not fully involved and invested in the work of God. And so there's the crowd, and then there's the disciples, and he's ministering this incredible challenge to them. You see, discipleship is not a guarantee. In other words, if you make a decision early on in your Christian life or even later on in your Christian life that, you know what, Pastor Stevens, I want to be a disciple. I've been messing around long enough, uh, uncommitted, half-hearted. I want to get all in. I want to be a disciple. Uh, What I mean by the statement, discipleship is not a guarantee, uh, I mean that you can be a disciple and then not anymore based on the decisions that you made. John chapter 6. Powerful sermon that Jesus preached. Something about this message deeply cut and challenged people who are identified as his disciples. They had made decisions up until that point to follow and remain, to embrace what he was preaching. But after he finished the sermon in John chapter 6, the Bible says uh, that many of his disciples, uh, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Uh, And from that time, many of his disciples uh, went back uh, and walked with him no more. And I wonder. How many does that describe? You've made choices, gotten involved in, in, in ministry, uh, and you're challenged, and you're challenged again, and you come to a point where you had enough. I don't want that anymore. I want some me time. I want to do my own thing. Uh, I don't want to be invested like that. I've had people tell me, Pastor, I don't want to be a disciple. But what a powerful... He didn't say... Many of the people, much of the crowd, but he said many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more than Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? These were followers. These were disciples. These were those that had made decisions that put them in a position of being a disciple. They've gone beyond being an observer. Their heart had been captivated. They've been touched. They've been moved. They're advancing. They're exhibiting a hunger for for God. They're hearing the preaching. That is, up until this point, they were willing to make those decisions that maintained their status uh, as a disciple. But what's interesting about this text, and when I was talking to Pastor Glenn, he pointed this out to me. The disciples hear this sermon, and they don't ask for an explanation for what he preached. They just came to the conclusion, I don't want this anymore. I want to be a disciple. Now it's costing me too much. Now look at what he's doing. He's asking more of my time, more of my heart, more of my life. 
He's asking for a greater investment. I don't want to go any further with this. And they walk no more with him. I wonder how many here are walking no more with him, not in terms of your salvation or in terms of your relationship, but in terms of discipleship. We just want to exist and have God leave us alone. No more challenge, no more discipleship. So let's examine, secondly, the terms of discipleship. The text begins with a very simple premise. The issue that Jesus is addressing here, and I believe three of the disciples, uh, three of the Gospels, rather, record these statements are one similar. So it impressed him. The issue that he's addressing is one of following without meeting the conditions. It's the mentality that we can follow Jesus Christ on our terms. We can set the conditions upon which we're going to serve God, live for God. We're going to set the conditions upon which we think we should be involved in ministry. And the problem is that we say this far too casually. Lord, I'll follow you. I'll go you go. I'll be a disciple. Whatever you have for my life, I want it. We say that far too casually uh, without realizing uh, there's a cost involved. It's a price to pay. He said to them, whoever desires to come after me, nothing wrong there. A longing is what that word means. A a hungering. Whoever desires uh, to come after me. Uh, And lots of people were saying, Lord, uh, I'll come. I'll follow you. Uh, Here I am. He wants them to understand uh, that there's a price to pay at some point in your life. You can't have it on your terms. Matthew 8, then a certain scribe came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're going to follow me? There you go. Then another of his disciples said, let me first go bury, uh, go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, people get far too casual. Oh, Lord, I'll follow you. Oh, Lord, I'm committed. Lord, I'll be involved. I want to be right where you are. But you're not realizing that there are terms and conditions. And he's not, nor am I trying to make discipleship unappealing or harder than necessary. He's just stating what it means to follow Jesus. So let's look at the terms as they're stated in our text. First of all, if you're going to be a disciple, there has to be a level and an element of self-denial. This is what Jesus uh, following him is going to entail. Now, the balance is, uh, listen, you get so much 
in just being a Christian, serving God with all your heart uh, that is fulfilling uh, and satisfying uh, and purposeful. Uh, you get to experience levels of joy, uh, levels of peace. Uh, we're no longer bound by sin, uh, living our life in the shackles of iniquity, uh, not to mention the will of God uh, and being useful uh, in His hands. Uh, self-denial uh, is the currency uh, to getting you to uh, the greatest benefits uh, that Christianity has to offer. You're going to have to deny yourself some things if you're going to be a disciple. Think about it in this context. And I already mentioned it in my introduction. If you want anything worthwhile in life, you're going to have to express some level of self-denial. If you're not willing to deny yourself, if you always have to indulge yourself, running around like a child uh, who kicks and screams uh, and has a temper tantrum uh, if he can't have what he wants right now. If that's the kind of people and adults we're going to be, uh, you're never going to have anything worthwhile in life. Life uh, uh, exacts a cost uh, if you're going to experience the best that it has to offer, uh, and that is self-denial. As I said, you want to be a student? You want to go to med school? You want to become a doctor? That requires a lot of self-denial. You may want to run around with your friends, have fun, got to study. You may want to do this, that, or the other thing, got to be in class, got to take notes at the lecture. Things that you yearn to do. No. Not because they're sin. Not because it's some form of overt rebellion or unrighteousness, but some things interfere with discipleship that have nothing to do with sin. It's just impulses and desires and longings and things that you want to do. And there are a lot of adult people who've never learned to deny themselves something that they yearn for. Now, this is not some extreme request. That Jesus is making. He's just stating a simple fact. That if you're going to be a disciple. If you're going to embrace the best that God has for your life in future. You're going to have to deny yourself. Your flesh and your appetites and your desires and your ambitions. Are going to want to take you in one direction. Discipleship takes you sometimes in another direction. It's simply necessary. For any real achievement in life. There's a doctor sitting here this morning. There's a fireman in our church. Being those things, there's benefits. There's fulfillment. But being those things required a lot of self-denial. And it's the same principle that works in the kingdom of God. You're going to have to deny yourself. And you're going to have to narrow your focus in life. Paul said, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, Philippians 3. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Any pursuit of excellence is going to require this, and the kingdom of God is no different. The problem is we think, we think it is different. We think that we can have all that God has 
on our terms without any self-denial. Well, you can't be a doctor without self-denial. You can't be a fireman without self-denial. You can't be an engineer or an architect on your terms. You've got to surrender to the terms of those who have the power to educate you and license you. You've got to surrender to their terms or you don't get to be one of those things. Self-denial. The second request, requirement that Jesus makes is you have to take up your cross. Every life is going to have crosses to bear. You're going to have to bear your cross in order to serve God. It cannot become an excuse. Oh, pastor, it's so hard. You don't understand what. Take up your cross. You've got to pick up your cross. And get on with serving God. There are going to be hardships and challenges and obstacles and difficulties and setbacks and failures. Jesus knows this. Jesus understands this. And he's speaking about a cross because one day he's going to have to carry a cross in order to fulfill the will of God in his life. And though our cross is not his cross, we all have our crosses to bear in life and we are expected to do the will of God despite them. You may have been deeply offended, deeply hurt. There may have been a tragedy, a situation, a circumstance. You are expected despite all the things that may happen to you in life, you're expected still to serve God. Some of you have mighty big crosses. And you're carrying them this morning. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for you to get ready and come to church. It won't be easy for you to come back tonight. It's not easy for you to write out that tithe check all the time and missionary money. There are hardships and difficulties and pressures that our brethren endure that, that are much greater crosses than others have to bear in their life. Jesus said in Matthew 10:38, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That puts it in a little bit of a different uh, light. Look at the obstacles and the hardships that some people have to deal with in their life. And they get on with it. Sometimes things are going to be hard. Sometimes you're going to have to shoulder that cross. Whatever it may be, Jesus is saying, get on with it and serve God. I want you to watch this video. This is the neonatal intensive care unit at McGee Women's Hospital. A very sad incident occurred here on September 28, 1981. A woman gave birth to a girl who had no arms or legs. The mother took one look at her daughter and rejected her immediately, never to see the child again. And that is how life started for Amy Brooks. She was abandoned with a condition called tetraphocamellia. Dr. Michael Alexander tried to convince Amy's mother to accept her. She said no. This is something I'd never encountered before in my career. A mother was rejecting her baby from the very beginning. The infant with no arms or legs was led to foster parents Richard and Janet Brooks and their four children. They adopted Amy as their own. She might have come from somebody else, but she was ordained to be in our home. We've never dealt with a child like that. 
um, it was very easy. She was a very easy child to, you'd show her something, and I always told her, don't say I can't, say I'll try. And that's still Amy's creed, 34 years later. I wasn't supposed to be here, by all accounts. I should not have been here. Um, but I am, and God doesn't make mistakes, for one. Um, he knew exactly who I would be um, before I was even conceived. Amy's parents taught her as a toddler how to live amongst everyone else and like everyone else, sometimes in unorthodox ways. It was my sister, Maya, and her friend Jen playing football. Nothing really out of the ordinary except I was the football. <laughs> Amy doesn't want your pity, just your eyes and your ears. She's a motivational speaker and author. Her first book is called Unseen Arms. Send yours to Becky, or do you want me to? Please, Becky. Yes, Amy even signs autographs in her book. She's good at carrying out many tasks, like applying her own makeup. Here, she's working the keyboard on her laptop. Instead of multiple fingers, she uses a partial limb to type. Amy is a master at texting with her upper lip while balancing the smartphone on her left shoulder. No, she doesn't cook, but once food is placed in front of her, she's on her own and lets nothing get in the way of satisfying an appetite. There's a pattern and message here. I believe that attitude determines altitude. To borrow a quote from Charles Swindoll, he says, I believe that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. I believe something powerful happens when we stop acting like a victim and we choose to show up and offer God what we are. She has a purpose, her aid dog logic, her family, and a new book coming out next month to push others through their unique challenges. I am living proof that if God can use me, he can use anybody. All you got to do is show up. You were born with a holy and divine purpose. Sheldon Ingram, Pittsburgh's Action News 4. You see, amen. It's not the fact that you have a cross to bear. It's the attitude that you have. You must bear the burden and carry the cross uh, in whatever shape or whatever form. And I know what I'm talking about. I've made my excuses before. Lord, uh, I don't know if I can go on. Uh, I don't know if I can serve you. Uh, I don't know if I have what it takes. Look at all of these disadvantages. Uh, you can hardly describe uh, a person uh, uh, like Amy Brooks uh, with more disadvantages than she had, uh, not just the physical handicap, uh, but the incredible rejection uh, of her own mother, uh, and yet she's able to overcome, bear the cross, make no excuse, uh, and serve God. When Jesus said, take up your cross uh, and follow after me, and if you cannot do that, uh, you're not worthy of me, uh, this uh, is what he meant. Now, let's look at the alternative to discipleship. Now, this sermon began with a consideration of the latter part of this text. The part of the scripture that says, whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them in the glory and in the presence of my heavenly Father. So that's what I was mulling around in my mind. I didn't connect it with the previous verses that it's connected to. I was thinking in, the ter in terms of 
preaching a sermon to challenge people to make a stand for God wherever you are. Overcoming the fear and sometimes the shame and the intimidation of of being a witness in your high school, being a witness on your job. I wanted to appeal to high school students in our church uh, that won't identify themselves as a Christian uh, because they're ashamed uh, of identifying with him. They won't make a stand or be an influence uh, or a witness in their high school. Uh, I wanted to appeal to the person uh, uh, on their job uh, who's intimidated uh, by all the worldliness and the materialism uh, uh, of people on the job uh, and they won't make a stand. They're afraid uh, that they're going to stand out from the crowd. And in our text, uh, it, uh, it does apply to that. Uh, for whoever is ashamed of me, uh, of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed. Now that should be something that you don't have to happen, but it will. If you're ashamed of him down here, if you're afraid and intimidated to make a stand for God down here because you're embarrassed or you're ashamed, then When you stand before God, he's going to be the same to you. But because this verse, whoever is ashamed of me, comes in the framework of this entire discourse that we read tonight, there really is another element to the meaning of this scripture that I want to close with this evening, this morning. So let's look at the entirety of of what Jesus said connected to that verse, because there's a stark contrast that we have to deal with. And what Jesus is essentially saying here is that the terms of discipleship will separate you from the crowd, not detach, not out of total contact with the crowd, but there's going to be a very clear mark and line of delineation discipleship and the choices that you make that propel you toward discipleship are going to separate you from the crowd. And that's why Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Discipleship will separate you, will produce a stark contrast like night and day. We'll still be in the vicinity of the crowd. We'll still be seen by the crowd. We will still perhaps interact to some degree with the crowd in our efforts to reach them. But the fact that you are a disciple is going to produce a stark contrast. And there are a lot of people that are embarrassed about that contrast and how extreme it is. You could be a lukewarm Christian, no contrast. You can be a compromising Christian, no contrast, really. You kind of laugh at their jokes and run with the crowd and never share your faith, never make a stand for God. But when you start making decisions to be a disciple, you can no longer hide behind your silence. When you start making decisions to be a disciple, you can no longer hide behind your silence 
And in the presence of this adulterous and sinful generation, you are going to stand out. And the adulterous and sinful generation, some may be impressed. Some may come under conviction. Some may get saved. But others are going to ostracize and mock and make fun of you. You're a lukewarm Christian going to high school. Hide behind your silence because you're not a disciple. At work, fearful and intimidated to make a stand. Maybe you've made a few efforts uh, here and there, uh, but ultimately a little embarrassed. They've shamed you. They've embarrassed you. They've mocked you. uh, And so uh, now you're hiding. But when you become a disciple, you no longer have that option. You're not going to fit in like you once did. You're not going to be accepted like you once were. Discipleship radically changes the landscape of your life. As a matter of fact, real discipleship will always result in some level of rejection by this world. And oh boy, some people just don't like that. And so they don't make the decisions that will propel them toward Discipleship. There are some people who absolutely don't want to structure their lives that way. They don't want to be identified and marked out. This adulterous and sinful generation will not be accepting of radical discipleship. They will not accommodate radical discipleship. And so... People compromise, they're ashamed, they're embarrassed, they don't want to stand out, they don't want to lose friends, they don't want to lose reputation. You see, it's not just a matter of being ashamed of Jesus or being ashamed of being a Christian in this wicked generation where we, if you identify yourself as such, stand to be mocked and ridiculed. It's being in a position... It's being ashamed, rather, of being in the position that radical discipleship will take you to. (laughs) You become a radical disciple, and then you go on to the high school campus. Oh, boy, hang on. Where there's all kinds of sexual perversion and homosexuality and uh, and occult uh, and all kinds of uncleanness and unrighteousness. Uh, A radical disciple uh, going on to a high school campus uh, when he or she sees sin cannot remain silent. And if you do, it's because you're ashamed. And if you're ashamed, there's an appointment in heaven where Jesus is going to be ashamed of you before his heavenly Father. I mean, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Sometimes your crowd, the crowd that you're around, It's going to go one way, and you're going to have to go the other. Here's Jesus. Imagine being him. He's preaching to perhaps hundreds of people who are identified as disciples. And he preaches in John chapter 6 this very powerful message that that talks about commitment and sacrifice and such things. And the entire crowd turns and walks away. He doesn't flinch. I mean, I'd be crushed. I would collapse into a fetal position if you all got up and walked out on me. He doesn't flinch. 
doesn't seem to bother him because he's done his part, fulfilled his mission. You're the one that's going to make the choices. And then he even turns to his disciples and said, you also going to go away? Perhaps there was that option in the hearts of some of them. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. You know, ultimately, this is nothing more or nothing less than an appeal to surrender. That's the virtue that is going to keep you on the cutting edge. That's the virtue that will see you through. For whoever desires, in our text it says, to lose his life, for whoever desires rather to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever just surrenders, accepts the challenge, makes the right decisions, that person who does it for my sake and the Gospels will save his life. The terms of discipleship, the crowd and the disciples, the people that he called to himself and the disciples that were there that he was already appealing to, that had already started down the road, but they had a lot more challenges in front of them. Jesus said at other times, follow me and keep following me. They had to face hardships and difficulty. They had to exercise self-denial and pick up their cross. And then there's the crowd who is being challenged by Jesus here. And there's so many dynamics at work in the hearts of people in relationship to God dealing with you about your status in the kingdom. Where are you at? Are you more like the disciples who have already started down the road? Maybe you're hesitating a little bit at some of the challenges that God is presenting to you now because they're more costly. In the beginning, there's not much cost. It's all exciting and thrilling and fun and enjoyable in ministry and revival and um, uh, miracles and supernatural. But are you still going to choose to follow him when there's a price to pay and when it's very costly and very expensive? That's really the issue. The terms of discipleship, are you willing? I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I realize that radical discipleship is not everyone's cup of tea, as they say. In a lot of churches, you won't hear a sermon like this. You won't. Much of the church world today appeals to the crowd, satisfies the crowd, keeps the crowd happy and never challenges them to greater and deeper levels of discipleship and faithfulness and commitment and willingness to pay a price. I really felt God dealing with me to preach this sermon on this Sunday morning. This is a follow-up to the sermon I preached on May 1st called, Am I a Disciple? It's been on my mind this verse has since then. And I wanted to preach it a little sooner than now, but this is just how it played out and how it worked out. So here we are, 
feeling the challenge. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. That's it. There it is. One sentence, you have the terms of discipleship. Those terms have to be chosen, however. And if you don't, and I don't make the right choices, then we, as Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple. I want to be a disciple. That's my choice. I want to go all in for God. I want everything that he has for me. I want to glorify him. I want his sacrifice to be a worthy effort on my behalf. I want him to be able to extract from me everything that is due him, everything that I owe him. And as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, perhaps you've come to church this morning. Maybe you've come as a visitor today. You're not a Christian. You're not right with God. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never been forgiven of your sins. You've never been born again. But you really want to be. You want to know Christ. You want to have a relationship with him. You really do want to be born again. You know you need your sins forgiven. Right now, I'm not talking about discipleship. I'm talking about conversion and your need to be forgiven of your sins. That scripture that I read is one of my all-time favorites. Whosoever is in Christ is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's what can happen in your life. You can be made new. That's what Jesus meant when he said you must be born again. That's what the word conversion means. It means you're going in one direction. And then at the point of conversion, you turn and you move in a different direction. Jesus Christ wants to lift the burden of sin off your shoulders. He wants to take away the guilt and the fear and the shame from inside your heart. There are people here, you're troubled deeply in turmoil, mental anguish. And it seems to never end, never stop. It never ceases. It's always churning away inside your heart. You know what? If you'll open your heart to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior, he will take that out and replace it with his love. I cannot describe to you the way that I felt on May 22, 1975, when I gave my life to Christ. That was 41 years ago, and I remember it as well as I remember waking up this morning, what it felt like to be forgiven of my sins as a 19-year-old young man, to have the weight and the burden of all of my addictions to drugs and alcohol broken and the curse of suicide lifted from inside my heart out uh, and all replaced with God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's presence in my life. I've never gotten over what happened to me that day. I was radically changed and different. The old Paul Stevens died forever and a new man rose up in Christ Jesus. And that can happen to you here today as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And if that describes you, and you would like me to say a prayer for you this morning so that you can know what I just described. I want to pray for you. And in order to pray for you, 
While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I'd like you to do one thing, very simple. Nobody's looking. I would like you to just lift your hand right where you're seated. Pastor, pray for me. I want to receive Christ. God bless you. I see that hand in the front here. Thank you, young man, very much. Anyone else? God bless you, young lady. I see that hand. Thank you. Anyone else? Lift your hand right up. God's dealing with your heart. Now's the time to repent and get your heart right with God. In Jesus' name, lift your hand right up and join these already that have responded. God's dealing with people's hearts. This doesn't happen by accident. You're here by divine appointment, and God wants to touch your life. You're not going to prosper in your sin. You need Jesus, and I want you to lift your hand right now all over this building. I want to repent. I want to get my heart right with God, lift it high so that I can see it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've already seen that hand. Thank you. Amen. God bless you. I see that. Thank you. You can put it down. Amen. Anyone else, lift your hand right up in the name of Jesus. Maybe you're backslidden. And you know, in the kingdom of God, it is really only forward. You have to keep making decisions in your life that will maintain your status as a disciple. If you stop, you go back. You can't decide and choose and advance and then stop and say, well, I want to advance this far and no more. You can't. The only way is forward. An airplane doesn't have a reverse or a stall. If it doesn't move forward at the right speed, it goes down. And the same is true in our lives. These people that said, no more, I don't want any more discipleship, and they walk no more with him, they start regressing and shriveling spiritually. And maybe that's happened to you, and you're backslidden this morning, and you need to rededicate your life to Christ. I want you to lift your hand. Have the courage to acknowledge the need in your life and lift your hand and say, I'm rededicating my life today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you raised your hand, I want you to look at me. Young man, did you, you meant that? Did you mean that? Amen. Did you mean that, young lady? I believe you did. Right here. Amen. You raised your hand. I believe you meant that. Amen. I want you to come. Would you come and let us pray with you? Liz, could you come and pray right here? God bless you. Have you ever given your life to Christ before? You have? Okay, Liz is going to pray with you right now. Would you come and let us pray with you? Amen. George, could you come? Rango, you're going to pray with him? Okay, come and help him pray. Amen. And someone else raised their hand. Amen. I want you to come. Hallelujah. Thank you, son. God bless you. Amen. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. Others are still coming. So how is it with you? You may be meeting the terms of discipleship. This altar is a place to reinforce. If I was here listening to this sermon, I'd be at the altar. This is a place to reaffirm discipleship. You don't know what challenges you're going to face in the future. I know that we can decide to serve God and then spend the rest of our lives making that desire real. But listen, you're going to be challenged, and we need the fortitude and the courage and the strength to bear up underneath whatever cross may come our way during the course of life. And we can pray for strength to come in the future to carry whatever cross. So I want to challenge every disciple to come and reaffirm. And others are here, and God's dealing with you. 
You need to start making decisions or go back to making the decisions that will define you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is what this altar is for today. So let's all stand, can we? I want everyone standing. There are young men and women. God has dealt with you. When I mentioned high school and workplaces and making a stand for God, he's spoken to your heart. We live in an adulterous and sinful generation, and that can intimidate, silence, and that's always the effort to silence the voice of the righteous, to make you feel shame, to make a stand for God in your life. Lord, I thank you. I praise you. I love you today. I need you more than ever, Lord. I want to use this opportunity this morning at these altars to surrender my all to you in Jesus' name. I surrender every feature of my life, everything that I have, everything that I possess. I'm choosing right now, Lord, I want to be a disciple. I want to be everything that you've called me to be. Therefore, I'm willing to exercise self-denial. I'm willing to pick up my cross. And I'm willing, Lord, to follow you, Jesus. God, I pray anointing at these altars. Pour out your spirit. Set on fire every soul, O God. I challenge every heart, O Lord. Oh, God, I thank you, I praise you, I love you, I need you, I exalt you, I glorify you, I worship you, Lord. I rejoice in your mercy and love and goodness in all that you're doing, O God. God, I thank you, I praise you, I love you, I need you, I exalt you, Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. You settle the matter with God. God, I want to be a disciple, and I'm making the decisions. I'm going to meet the terms. I'm going to serve you on your terms, not my own, and I'm surrendering my whole life and future to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. There are others here that you have chosen willfully the road of compromise, the road of lukewarmness, and the road of hiding behind your silence, hiding your Christianity behind silence. Not acceptable. That's what Jesus is saying. You're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you before my heavenly Father. God, we need your Holy Ghost to give us boldness to stand up for you in this adulterous and sinful generation. Let the fire of the Holy Ghost fall over this altar right now, Lord. Oh, God, I cast down all compromise and self-will and our pride and half-heartedness. And spiritual lethargy, O God, let the Holy Ghost fall and fill every soul in every life in Jesus' name. Oh, 
Yendere alara vilara bakoria ravilara mando rodoro bosalara mando rodoro Oh God, I thank you, Lord. I praise you. I exalt you. I worship you. I glorify you, O oh God, in the name of Jesus. Eria ravilara basharia ravilara bakoria. Yendere alara vilara barobo rabalara vilara mando rodoro bose. Radical discipleship changes everything. Changes the landscape of our lives. Changes its direction. Changes how we behave, how we act, how we lead. Let's all stand. And I want to conclude this service by leading you in a prayer of surrender. Oh, God, we are really on the cusp, I believe, of great revival. We're already seeing and tasting a a greater dimension of revival in our church, in our midst, on our outreaches, seeing people saved and then come to church. And I believe as we take this step to embrace radical discipleship, some of you are going to cross over from being a crowd to being a disciple. It's one decision at a time. God, I'm going to follow you. That's all it was. Jesus told Peter, come, follow me, and he did. That's it. It starts small, starts incremental, but then other challenges will come. And we have to continue to surrender in order to maintain the status of discipleship in our lives. So pray with me right now. We're going to just surrender. Let God know. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Oh, God in heaven. I thank you this morning for your wonderful grace, the blood you shed, the suffering you endured to give me forgiveness of sins, to give me everlasting life. Lord, I thank you for that. Therefore, I am right now surrendering and re-surrendering and reaffirming my past surrender to you right now. Everything that I am, all that I have, I am surrendering to you so that I can walk down the road of discipleship, making right choices in the face of whatever challenges you have for my life. I'm committing myself to a lifestyle of self-denial, taking up the cross, and following you, Lord. And never again will I allow myself to be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ in my life. I will never again mask my Christianity behind silence. From this day forward, radical discipleship. I embrace the challenge on your terms, not my own. I surrender all. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's worship God right now. Hallelujah.
God, I praise you, Lord. I glorify you, Lord. I exalt you, O God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yerra la ravila raba rondo rolo robo raba la ravila ramandai. Yo rolo robo salaramandere alaramande. Oh God, I rejoice, Lord. I praise you, oh God. I thank you for all that you're doing in my life. I rejoice in your favor and grace. Hallelujah. Surrendering all to you, oh Lord, right now in Jesus' name. Oh, thank God. Let's give the Lord praise. Hallelujah. Oh, Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. For the Lord would say, I have called you, says the Lord. I have called you to a deeper commitment of discipleship in your life, saith God. Yea, if you will respond to me and surrender, the Lord would say, I will pour out my spirit over your lives as never before. I will bless you with fruitfulness. I will prosper you and your families going out and coming in, saith God. For yea, the Lord would say, I am coming soon, saith God. And in these last days of time... I have desired to pour out my spirit, and upon you I will do so. Only draw closer to me, saith God, and I will surely bring to pass all that I have promised, saith the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Oh, God, you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be glorified. You are worthy, O Lord, to be exalted in the name of Jesus. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We're going to bow our heads. And just dismiss the service on that note. I want to encourage every one of you to come back. The message tonight is called, uh, is called Winning the Race War. And I want to address the issues at hand in our nation from the Word of God. And you'll, I believe you're going to greatly appreciate uh, the message tonight. So come, bring someone that needs the Lord. We've had a lot of people saved the last uh, uh, several hours, actually, the last few days. So 
uh, follow up on people. Let's bring people that need Jesus and believe God for a great outpouring of the Holy Ghost tonight. Amen. Our heads are bowed. I'm going to ask if uh, George Solace would just close the service in prayer. Thank God for speaking to our hearts here this morning. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Go rejoicing. We'll see you tonight.